episode 51 with Scott Sheriff. Had a great conversation. Scott is the uh, keyboardist for Carrie Underwood. He's worked with many, many other people, including Kenny Loggins, uh, Stephen Curtis Chapman, uh, David Foster, Kelly Clarkson, Richard Marks, a uh, whole slew of people. Uh, really had a great conversation. And who put us together was my co-host, Rob Asselstein. Rob was a guest of mine uh, a few episodes back, so make sure you check that out. And the three of us had a great conversation. Also check out the sponsors for this particular podcast, mygrandfathersfiddle.com. They do uh, one-of-a-kind custom t-shirts, and I'm just going to drive you right to their website, right, grandfathersfiddle.com. I really want you to see what they do, and uh, I think you'd really like it a lot. Also, morningbuzzcoffee.buzz. Make sure you check that website out. Great coffee. I'm just finishing my first bag, and uh, really, really great stuff. I'm going to order some more. It's fantastic. Uh, so you check out morningbuzzcoffee.buzz. They'll ship right to you. And uh, two musicians based out of Hamilton to run that business, and it'll be great to support them. Also, Music City Canada, great music store based out of London, Ontario. They ship to you right away. Uh, they have a great selection of everything you could ever imagine. Uh, fantastic guitar shop, drum shop, rentals, installations, everything you can ever imagine. So check out everyone at musiccitycanada.com. All right, here we go with Scott Sheriff. All right, we're rolling and we're here uh, on episode, this is actually episode 51 uh, with Scott Sheriff sitting in, you're in Nashville now, is that correct? Yes, West Nashville. It's a little suburb called Bellevue. Yeah, I know what that is. But it's about about 15 minutes from downtown. Excellent. Nice to have you on the podcast. And uh, over to my other side, I see a fellow that's been on the podcast before. Not video-wise, but we did an audio podcast a year or so ago. Um, Rob Asselstein's there. Nice to have you, Rob. Thank you very much, Darren. Good to be here. Thanks. Yeah. Nice to have you as the co-host uh, this time. And uh, we're going to have a, a great interview, I believe. We've been chatting already, and it's been going very well i uh, should have re- started recording 10 minutes ago but <laughs> here we go <laughs> yeah. but we're sitting with scott uh scott is a keyboardist and he's performed with a lot of great famous uh wonderful entertainers and is currently working with uh carrie underwood um and uh i'm sure that's got to be a great gig yeah it's it's really phenomenal it's, we have a lot of fun I haven't seen uh, Carrie live for a little while. How long have you been uh, working with Carrie? I got hired um, by her in 2015. Did some award shows, did some uh, summer festivals, and then we did the Storyteller Tour in 2016. Took a couple years off and did uh, Cry Pretty in 2019. So that's the bulk of the work that I've done with her and everything in between. And every now and then... When I've had, whenever I know that Scott's going to be on television, I know that he carries his phone in his pocket. Okay. So I always send a text. I did that on the Today Show. You guys are doing that <laughs> every now and then. That's my yes. My, that's how I have fun. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so I have to Asselstein proof phone my phone next <laughs> yeah. time I go on on, on the air. <laughs> yeah. yeah, especially with the. Uh, 
you have to put an emphasis on the asshole sign on that particular one because it's probably in your back yeah. pocket. <laughs> yeah. I don't need any extra distractions. It's hard enough to play on TV. <laughs> so you grew up in, I looked online and did a little research. You grew up in Pennsylvania, right? Yeah, I was an Eastern Pennsylvania boy. Grew up in Bethlehem, which is about halfway between Philly and New York. So yeah, those are the two closest big cities. Yeah, and it's close to Lancaster, right? Yeah, and it's Lancaster. If you ever go yes. down there, just make sure. I, I don't want you to get ridiculed by the locals. But uh, yeah, it's 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 about as far from Lancaster as it is from Philadelphia. Oh yeah, yeah. I've been through that area a bunch of times. So a uh, uh, great uh, neck of the woods. Lots of Amish folk around there, and uh, yeah, and one of the famous sound companies, at least in the states, yep. Claire Brothers, in Lidditz, Pennsylvania, not too far. Uh, in fact, growing up. People used to take pilgrimages to Lidditz to, they could kind of catch a little bit of either might be yes, rehearsing for a tour or some other Claire Brothers client. Just kind of interesting little tidbit there. Yeah, it's an interesting spot for them to be, uh, considering how big of a, a touring company they are. And But they have a, a, some big rehearsal spaces there as well. So it's probably a nice out of the way place for people to go and get prepped for their tour. Yeah, probably get away from the the paparazzi yeah so when did you actually start playing uh piano wise i know you you had a musical family as well is that right yeah my mom was more of a classically trained pianist and organist and my dad was more of a jazzer he played stand-up bass and could play piano by ear so that's i got my ear from from my dad for sure and uh, my mom was a pretty good vocalist too and so uh, she, that kind of got some great genes passed down to me. I started taking piano lessons as a kid, like most kids, that's when they start. And I kind of lost interest because I wasn't really into the prescribed, put a book in front of them, learn this song for next week. If I, I, I didn't know it at the time, but I really did play by ear quite a bit. If I heard my teacher play something for me and I really liked it, I would go home and dig into it. Uh, most probably right after the lesson because it was still fresh on my memory and my ears. And then other times, if I had got distracted and then had to go back to the piano and practice, I would just be kind of like, eh, no thanks. Um, so um, all this to say, I, I kind of gave it up and was a little league player and just kind of messed around, but then discovered when MTV came out that uh, I could play by ear and that there were some pretty cool songs out there to play on piano. Mostly yeah. was the Hall and Oates stuff that grabbed me right away. Kiss on my list, private eyes. Uh, you make my dreams. So I started sitting at my piano with my boom box, kind of playing along, seeing if I could figure out these songs. And that just kind of developed. And then I started transcribing songs that I wanted to learn because I was a trumpet player since fourth grade. So I knew how to read music. I knew how to write music at least good enough to get by, but I just wanted to be able to write things down so that I could go back and play them later. Uh, so that kind of developed into some garage bands we had in, in our little suburb of Hellertown, Pennsylvania. We had uh, Black Horizon was our basically a Who tribute band with a bunch of other songs. Nice. But uh, we played some Sticks and we played Won't Get Fooled Again and we played some Doobie Brothers. I brought China Grove into the band and then uh, that band disbanded and we formed another 
a band called Drama, and that was a little more lean toward the progressive rock stuff. We played Tempest Fugit by Rush and Roundabout, and but we played a bunch of top 40 so we could do high school dances and uh, kind of did that for a couple years with some local guys. And then after that, um, decided to go to college and wasn't really ready to put all my eggs into the music basket. So I went to Penn State for a year with a business degree and a music minor took some music classes for fun yeah. and all my teachers were kind of steering me, you know, you should probably really be a music major. What do you want to do if you could? And I said, well, I'd like to produce records uh, and, you know, be in the music business. Well, you're not going to learn that here in Penn state's music department, but one of my choir directors took a special interest in me and started looking around he said, you might want to check into temple or, Berkeley or University of Miami. And so I ended up picking Berkeley and that's where I went after Penn State. Got Excellent. my degree there in music production and engineering. Ah, cool. It's it's interesting but when, I, you, uh, when you talk about when you're first starting playing by year, and I can relate to that 100% because I kind of went through that same thing where you'd, you'd learn, you look at the notes, you learn it, but you'd memorize it as you were learning it and you had it. So you kind of forgot about the music. And and that's almost really as learning as a young person is dis, kind of discouraged by a lot of teachers. And I think it's something that if someone has that gift to be able to do that, um, and, I, and I guess maybe because a lot of teachers don't know what to do with that because maybe they don't have that in, in them or that gift, um, it should be encouraged more because it was, you know, and I then we, for that. we all end up improvising because of that, uh, because it's, we, we, because it's in our heads and it's in our ears. And if you've ever hung out with a, a legit classical musician, they struggle to ad lib and they, you know, I, I went to a, an evening with a friend who was a, a legit classical player and my cousin and I just sat down with a beer and started playing four hands, just messing around. And he said, how on earth do you do that? And we said, how on earth do you not? <laughs> yeah. And it's because I'm, it's exactly as you said, he was, he's so tied to the music and the accuracy of reproducing uh, the written uh, music that he never strayed into the dark side. Like, like, like we did. Yeah. It's kind of, I'm really grateful in the path that I've taken playing trumpet, being able to read music and learning to read music at a young age. I'm not a knockout sight reader. Uh, maybe with one hand, I'm pretty good. Probably in maybe the 75th percentile if you're just talking one hand, but, um, but it's really helped me most in preparing for gigs because my MO is to take whatever part I'm going to be playing in the situation and write it out just so that I have a record of it. And for me, that's a lot. It's, it may be a little more work intensive on the front end, but then I've got a written record of what I'm supposed to be playing. And at any point I don't have to go back and listen and learn again. I can just look at these records that I've created basically. Oh, okay. That's what I'm supposed to play. And something in the process of doing that for me burns it into my brain too, to more often than not, I'll memorize it faster than I would have if I just kept listening by rote and trying to memorize it that way. But having that initial re recording spot where I've written it down, I've put it on paper, then I can shelve it away, especially in, in Nashville. I've 
gotten to be where I'm involved with a lot of different cover bands, both in Nashville and Atlanta. And for me to constantly memorize and review and try and figure out what I'm supposed to play, especially when you got these bands who are repeating these songs, but I'm playing different keyboard parts. I have to remember, well, what's my vocal part with this band? Well, what's my keyboard part with this band when we play, you know, well, Jump's a bad example by Van Halen. But if you take any of these Steely Dan songs, I'm, I play with our Steely Dan tribute here in Nashville, but I also play with a band called uh, Broadway Duchess down in Atlanta. And sometimes I'm on the other chair down there and I've got to figure out, well, it's not the Rhodes part. I have to play a horn reduction with this band. But I've got all that written down, so it's just a matter of what PDFs I'm importing into my iPad that night, and I can just read it. And it's my reading chops are good enough that I can do that on the spot. I almost don't have to prepare for the gigs as long as I know I'm going to have those charts. And one of the things that uh, Scott introduced me to a number of years ago is a <clears throat> transcription program called Transcribe. And uh, the, the 12th, uh, what's the name of the website, 12th Thread? Is that what it's called? I can't recall. I'm not even sure. It's been so long since I purchased it. But yeah, that took my transcription time and cut it in half because I just can't sit there and scrub an iTunes needle back and forth. Right. Transcribe makes that instantaneous and it's so, cut my so for the, in half. So for the musicians who are watching this podcast, Transcribe slows down the song without changing the key. That's actually, well, that's one of the things it does. And that's one of the, maybe the least used things that I got it for. But uh, yeah, what I got it for is the instantaneous rewind and advancement by measure or beat or section. Once you map out the song in transcribe, you never have to leave your environment of notation. I can stay in Sibelius, which is my, my version. And if I want to start working on the first verse, uh, I'll Just scroll repeat. to the first verse, hit play, and then I can listen to a measure and hit that same button and it stops and rewinds right to where I stopped. Yeah. I don't yeah. have to keep going back and scrubbing the needle. Yeah. And if I said, okay, I got that first measure, I want to go up a measure. I just hit one button. I hit, I guess that's one of my, well, one of the cursor. You can set it to be whatever button you want. Yeah, you just advance it, it forward. One measure. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm, I got that verse. I want to go to the chorus. Whoop, I'm, all the, I'm on the chorus. That Doing that while you're transcribing on another program, I, I don't see how anybody does it. It would drive me absolutely bananas. Yeah, I could see that. And then you talk about people, uh, this gets me on a rant, but people <laughs> want you to learn music and they give you a YouTube link. That is so useless to me as far as learning a song. Make me an MP3, spend a dollar on me, and send me the song you want me to learn. Then I can put that in transcribe. I can move it forward and backwards. But if I'm going to a YouTube link, I might as well just run the output of my keyboard into my other computer and make an MP3. Because by the time I sit there and scroll through your YouTube link trying to make a chart or learn the song, I could have made four songs doing it the other way. Yeah, you can see that for sure. It's interesting you say when you're when you're learning writing it down makes a big difference and it does and you hear other people in different uh types of entertainment or if you're a comedian a lot of comedians do that they'll write down uh their jokes and their sets because that something put putting the pen down and physically writing it makes the implant in your brain work mm. much faster than trying to sit there and doing a repetitious thing over and and over again and maybe it's a bit of a uh 
I hate to say an age thing, but I think it's it's just one of those things. I think it, it just seems to work, right? Yeah. I bet there's some science. There's got to be some science behind it. Yeah. You'd have, probably have to talk to a neurologist or some kind of maybe. One of, one of the things that when I was in school, my professor asked me what, who my favorite composer was <clears throat> and then suggested that I transcribe by hand my favorite uh, favorite scores just for exactly that reason. Your hand is in the in a place, so it's a physical uh, uh, attachment to whatever you've written. So even if you can't hear it, you can see it in your mind because your hand was there doing it. Yeah. Lots. Yeah. And that's kind of part of the Berkeley curriculum when it comes to improvisation is transcribing solos. And back then, you know, we were, you were probably looking at a, a very speed cassette players that, that were out at that point that people were using or even reel to reel in the library where they could slow it down and run the output of the reel to reel into their Walkman recorders or whatever. But yeah. just the fact of, of taking down what someone else has done and then learning that. And then that becomes part of your lit vocabulary. And then as you grow and listen to other people, your conglomeration of people that you've listened to over the years kind of makes you and shapes you into a unique soloist who's borrowing a lick from Charlie Parker here and Jay Graydon over here and Herbie Hancock over here. And all of a sudden you've got this unique thing. That's just you. So what was, what was Berkeley like overall for you? How, how'd you like that experience? Uh, I like Berkeley a lot. It's a, it's a place where you get out what you put into it. And so there were a lot of kids who showed up the first semester uh, expecting to be transformed into rock stars. And you usually didn't see them either after the first semester or after the second semester, they were usually gone, but the kids who wanted to really sink their teeth in and, and learn and play and grow and study, uh, it's a good, it, they definitely have the resources there to, to go a long way. They have, at the time they had a great synth lab, they had great recording studios. Uh, I kind of ran the gamut of what I wanted to explore. I took music notation classes. That was kind of part of the curriculum. They wanted to be able to read all these students' handwriting when they turned in their projects. So that was smart. But there's a basic core curriculum of arranging. Uh, there's either three or four uh, steps in there. Ear training, uh, harmony. Those were kind of the three uh, basic core classes. And they tested you when you got there and decided what level you could test out of. So I didn't need to take any ear training. I tested out of one through four. So I got out of that because I was kind of glad because they were using solfege. And that really wasn't one of my favorite ways to do ear training, but I guess it was a means to an end that they had found that worked. Yeah. But the, the end was, can you write down what you're hearing? And in my test, I could. So it didn't matter what they threw in front of me. I could write it down, so I didn't need to take any ear training. I think I tested out of maybe one or two semesters of harmony, uh, and I think I probably took started with arranging too. But that was that was fun. We got to learn how to arrange for horns and strings, and so that was a good introduction to arranging. And then, of course, my my degree was music production and engineering. Yeah. So uh, you know, in order to even get to get your hands on that gear, you had to stay in the program long enough to make it through the core curriculum and then start to get introduced to your specialties. So along the way, I took some voice lessons, took some piano lessons, uh, piano labs. Uh, it was just a really great time for me. And uh, it's living in the city was definitely different. I was, I was a rural country, not like out in the country, but 
Uh, my dad worked for Bethlehem Steel, so he had a blue-collar job. But uh, we definitely did not live in anything close to a city. Yeah. Um, so that was kind of different for me to take the subway and the buses and, and uh, you know, traipse around in the snow as cars go flying by, splashing slush at you and all that fun stuff that happens in the city. But, uh, yeah, I enjoyed it and then went straight to Nashville because I knew that's kind of the lifestyle I wanted choosing between New York, L.A., or Nashville. I had several friends that already lived down there that went to Berkeley with me yeah. and kind of blazed the trail the first for a year or two before I got there and were able to open a lot of doors for me when I got down. Can, uh, can you uh, tell us about the rig that you use when you're on tour with Carrie, the, the, the instruments that you're using? Yeah, my, my touring rig is pretty simple. Um, I use a Hammond SK2 dual manual digital organ, but I run it through a, a Leslie 145 cabinet. I've got two of those on the road. One's a backup because uh, Leslie's can be funky and yep. sometimes not dependable, but I've had pretty good luck. Our crew takes great care of all that stuff. And uh, I use a Roland RD2000. I proudly endorse Roland keyboards. I used the RD800 on our first tour, and then they came out with the 2000, and that's a fantastic all-purpose keyboard. There's pretty much any sound I need to get from her records I can make on the 2000, and it feels great. It sounds great. I've got a, a spare out on the road, and we also still have the 800 out on the road that we have in a, uh, a facade for Carrie to play. Uh, during an acoustic medley we do in the middle of the show that that comes out of the ground on a lift and uh, she sits down and plays see you again uh, on the rd800 there so uh, i'm a real I, I love rolling gear i use the rolling cloud synths quite a bit love yeah. that i have access to all that old rolling stuff yeah. virtually now and can take it with me on my laptop so it's great i've, I've all of a sudden got my D50 back and my JV1080 back in my rig. And oh, don't you I don't use the... any computers on the road, but um, pretty much I'm all virtual when I'm playing out live around Nashville. Yeah. The, you mentioned the D50. Love that keyboard. <laughs> it's just a, the ultimate pad machine. Um, oh, and it's so unique. Yeah. You know, it's, nothing else sounds like it. Yeah, and, they, and at the time when it came out, it really was just, it was a killer, uh, killer beast. Um, yeah, if you were looking for a piano sound on it, you were out of luck. But no. man, such amazing synth sounds. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I love that for sure. So uh, on the road, Carrie. So no, no laptop, no VST synth or nothing. Just straight everything in the in the two thousand. Yeah, we kind of. I kind of prefer to keep it that way. It's it's super dependable, yeah. and I really don't miss not having the virtual stuff. So when you're going out, uh, besides that, uh, doing your other things. When you're keeping it more virtual, what are you using in that situation? Wow, I've, uh, I'm a main stage. That's my environment that I yeah. perform with. Um, so I've got all the uh, native instrument package that comes with complete. Um, so I use a lot of contact stuff and samples that I've collected over the years. But the first call horns from uh, Big Fish Audio, use those. Uh, quite a bit. Then I use the session strings and the session horns that come with complete. I use ivory, uh, Keyscape. Yep. Um, uh, I used to use a program called Sonic Synth from IK, but they stopped updating it and it stopped working. For a while there, there was a program out called 32 Lives that would convert 
older plugins and make allow them to be usable again. But that stopped working as well. Uh, I use um, VB3 version 2, I believe it's called, unless they switch it to VB4. But it's uh, I, th I think it's made, and I use a lot of guitar plugins that Rob introduced me to, Rob and Robert Martin on the Fallsview stuff. They introduced me to these great guitar plugins where you can, one's real guitar, real yeah. LP for Les Paul, real Strat, uh, real Rickenbacker. Uh, those are the ones that I use, especially in the Eagles tribute. I'm, I put a lot of those to good work. Yeah, the real guitar, the real guitar acoustic is amazing. Uh, it's yeah. strums, it strums perfectly. <laughs> yeah, it has a well, it has a separate upstroke and downstroke on different keys. So whatever chord you're making with your right hand, you strum it with two keys in your left hand. So one's an upstroke, one's a downstroke, and those are on C and D. And on C sharp and D sharp, they have the mute keys. So you can even make it more realistic by muting in between the strums to really uh, kind of sound like a real acoustic player. Playing and, strum, and, you can, and you can set it so that when you change from a one chord to a four chord, the sound of your finger on the strings <laughs> sliding up yeah, you hear the, to the next position. Yeah. <laughs> you can hear the squeak. Uh, I use Real Les Paul quite a bit too through a, through a nice Apple distortion plug-in. And uh, it's, it's great for power chords. And uh, it's, I've, I've played some at sound checks, and, and people are looking around like, <laughs> whose rig is that? And yeah. I'm just kind of over here you know, waving at it. That's, <laughs> yeah, that's me, the me guitar with my, player. Yeah. yeah, that's me, the guitar player. So yeah. that's a lot of fun, too. I, I, have, I have a blast playing, uh, playing Life in the Fast Lane on my guitar plug-in. <laughs> yeah, they work great. I had them all on my, my old Mac Tower rig, and when I updated, uh, I just didn't bother to move some things over and that was one of them and and now i'm thinking oh, i should re-download those and get back that back in my system again but uh, <laughs> yeah they were pretty well. they're pretty uh yeah they work well and they're solid i haven't had any kind of weird glitches or update problems or anything they they what they uh what uh what daw uh do you work on uh you mentioned I work on logic logic okay. yeah i work in logic in fact, i've got a session up here now i've been working on some background vocals for a uh, an artist that came down here and uh, just started. We, we recorded basic tracks on his project just when Nashville was starting to shut down. Yeah. So we got in just before the, the quarantine. We still was, we still knew enough about it that we were bringing hand sanitizers and sitting six <laughs> feet apart. But uh, it was really before we all started staying home, we got the basic tracks done. So uh, they've been slowly feeding me the, the songs to record background vocals on. Now Logic has a, yeah, it's a in Logic. new update in Logic now. Have you got that happening? Uh, I am okay. working on what version. I am on uh, ten four eight right now. Yeah, I'm not sure. I'm what not the, sure what the. I know they had I'm a sure pretty what the latest is, but pretty big update that just came out over the last kind of oh. month, and uh, quite a substantial update. You might want to look hmm, at it. I need it, to check up on that. Yeah, in a good way, or is it still buggy? Oh, well, I yeah, I haven't yeah. had many bugs, but uh, that's kind of why I've been using it because it's 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 just like main stage and and it's a really familiar environment. Everything is kind of what you see is what you get, and mine never crashes, so uh, I haven't had problems <laughs> with yeah. you know. And it's auto saves anyway, but 
um, it's been real great. And I use Melodyne. It's real easy to use in yeah. Logic. Uh, so, and all their, you know, all the plugins just kind of stack up together and make it easy to use. Have you guys started exploring the uh, the whole sampling world yet? With the ES, as far, with the ES uh, oh, like making our own. <coughs> I, I haven't tried. Uh, you know, I, I use that plugin quite a bit. Um, and uh, my friend has sampled his piano and formatted it for ESX, but um, I'm so lazy that there's so many pre-made samples for contact and everything that I just pretty much reason, go that route. Reason, reason I asked that, you can get some really strange sounds. I, I have a bamboo flute that I sampled one note, and it gave me the entire keyboard for it. It sounds like a, yeah. Mel like a Mellotron. Oh, yeah. I can see how that would yeah. be pretty fun. Pretty amazing stuff. Yeah, there's it's just constant uh, new things all the time. I've I changed over to uh, I was a digital performer guy for years and mm -hmm. years and years and uh, years and years, and I just switched over to Luna. Like Photoshop for musicians. <laughs> yeah, I know. Why well, back when there was a Mac Classic, right? The little you know, I was yeah. using performer, but uh, we still run our live show on digital performer. Yeah, I do. With live, yeah, when I'm doing live tracks, I use Digital Performer because it's it's the only really thing that works. Well, there's other options now, but uh, it you use the Q function and it just one song and it just ramps itself right to the next song and away you go. Um, but yeah, it's that's kind of like the mainstay for for running tracks. Um, <clears throat> but I moved over to Luna from uh, Universal Audio. Just came out with their new DAW, um, and it's stellar. Like it's. I'm still blown away every day working on it, how good it sounds. It just sounds, it sounds like you're working on a really good console, which is mm. hard to think of when you, whenever you think of a DAW, you don't really think of it having a, a sound too much. Um, yeah. But Luna certainly does. It has a warmth um, and it has a, a Neve summing um, built into it. And it, it really just gives this wonderful sound that it just, just kind of, blows my mind every time i use it it seems like it's to get a mix up it takes about half the amount of work it just seems to come together mm. in about half the amount of time but it's not really a, a, a you know a replacement for logic if you're doing a lot of keyboard stuff it's not mm. the midi implementation is is decent but it's not where it's going to be because it's just still brand new but um but for mixing and tracking it's 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 pretty pretty awesome so Scott, are you Definitely. doing? Uh, you did. You did a, a session for me when we did the uh, "Thank You for Being a Friend" uh, video. Um, are you finding that in this uh, environment that you're getting calls from further afield to uh, provide uh, tracks for somebody, like somebody calling in from LA or from England, even or <clears throat> other parts of the world? Is that starting to happen with the guys in Nashville? Uh, I can't speak for the community as a whole it hasn't really changed too much for for me we started making um some unplugged videos with our live from venture boulevard band but it really hasn't generated any extra work unfortunately uh but i wasn't a particularly high in demand session person in town anyway i kind of make uh kind of make my bones writing charts and leading bands and touring. That's kind of where I found my niche and done occasional session here and there. So 
it's really hard to gauge that from me. I would have to, I would probably ask more, you know, the guys who that's their bread and butter is sessions with Mark Hill or John Hammond, Gary Lund, Tom Hemby, those kind of guys to see, you know, how their world has changed with this whole quarantine thing. I know they still go into, they still do session work. They just make sure they wear their mask and they sit far apart. And, you know, they've, they've kind of kept that world quietly moving. Uh, they try not to make a too, too much of a big deal about it, but I definitely have seen some pictures and stuff from, from people in recording sessions. It hasn't shut it down completely. Yeah. Yeah. I've seen that too. So let's go back a little bit. When you got into Nashville, um, what was kind of the first gig that you got when you got into town? Um, I, like most folks, uh, had to find another job other than music. When first moving to town, I was a waiter at a restaurant we have called Ruby Tuesday. I don't know if it made its way up, up to Canada or not, but it's kind you know of, what a, it they is. call it a fern bar. Yeah. yeah, it's a fern bar, uh, brass rails and, and salad flowers. Salad bar. Yeah, <laughs> salad bar, you know, wait, uh, Wayne's coating on the walls, but, uh, and, uh, I started to meet some people and my first big foot in the door was, uh, I, I bought some studio equipment. I bought a half inch eight track machine and just some, a couple of used compressors and just, just enough to get going recording song demos and things like that. And, and I was, was able to get connected with a, a song publisher in Nashville, uh, the, their name was the McSpadden Music Group. They had their their patriarch was Gary McSpadden, who had actually sung at one time with the Imperials. Uh, so I think he's, and then he uh, sung with the Oak Ridge Boys at one time, but he was a Southern gospel artist at, and sang with the Gaither family. That was his big claim to fame. Yeah. And he's recently just passed away, but uh, he and his family gave me a break and made me their in-house engineer for their song demos. And they had a lot of up and coming writers. Um, and so we started, I started working with them. They had kind of an in-house MIDI studio with an MC 500 and a D 50. And uh, I can't, I think that might be the only big keyboards they had. So I brought my keyboard rig in there as well. And they didn't really hire me to be a producer, but I had those arranging and production skills. So I kind of eased my way into that part. Wasn't just an engineer started working with their writers and uh, one in particular name was her name was Dawn Thomas and she had had cuts with uh, eventually ended up having cuts with James Ingram, Earth, Wind and Fire and Anita Baker. And so it's kind of fun to hear song demos that we had made get turned into these major artists, you know, cuts. And uh, so that was my big break into the Nashville music scene. Um, That led to, uh, me being a, a staff writer and producer with them. So uh, I started writing songs for them and, and still producing demos uh, for their other artists. Their, this Don Thomas gal ended up getting a, a record deal and P- Tommy LaPuma was her producer. And so she went out to LA and started recording with these huge name session guys, Robbie Buchanan, Nathan East, J.R. Robinson, and just... Uh, they started working on her record and they got to one song that they just could not really reproduce the demo to Tommy LaPuma's liking. So they ended up flying me out to LA with my MC 500 sequencer box and all my patches written by hand. I didn't really have them 
sysx dump to any particular form of data so i had all these patch parameters written down on a tablet of paper that i and they they drove me picked me up at the airport limo me to robbie buchanan's studio and i started i got to work in his synth rack getting on his oh we had an m m1 rack that was another thing oh, we yeah. had so i'm in there plugging in the sounds to an, the m1 rack then i plug into the sounds to the d50 and i hooked up my mc500 and we ended up re-recording the tracks at his place and they took the actual recording off my half inch of a soprano sax solo we had and of her vocal and they sampled it and they flew that in to the final and then they mastered that as part of her record so that was kind of an interesting look into the music business and and what what length they'll go to to uh achieve the demo love that they had for the song when they first heard it um my first big touring gig was with a band called allies it was a christian band and their lead singer was a guy named bob carlisle who would go on to have this huge butterfly kisses song oh, yeah. back in the late 90s and i wasn't part of that song but i did end up um arranging two or three numbers on the record that it was on shades of grace and ended up playing with him on the tonight show um but anyway that was uh the after allies was my first major artist that we're touring arenas with. And that's a guy named Stephen Curtis Chapman. He was a pretty huge Christian artist from yep. the uh, late eighties. And he's still going strong today, you know, not to the extent that he once was, but you know, my first tour with him was places like reunion arena. And it was, it was a, a tour in 92 off a record called the great adventure. And that was my first big, big peek into the touring world and living on a bus and, and you know, arena dressing rooms and catering and and uh, you know, big time production, sound and lights, and rigging, and all this crazy stuff. So that's that's where I got my first taste of that. And then I was with him for several tours, on and off, all the way through the mid two thousands, maybe even two thousand six or so. Yeah. And uh, my next gig after that was the uh, was the Kenny Loggins gig that came in as a sub in two thousand and five. And then 2006 rolled around and he asked me if I wanted to take the seat uh, for good and become his keyboard player. So that's when that happened. That would have been a fun gig. There's lots of great hits there. That was one of the toughest gigs ever because Kenny's, uh, he's a musician's musician and he asks a lot of his band. And so it was really good. It was really tough. I worked really hard and uh, just, if you had a, a hand free or a foot free, he wanted you to be working on something, whether it was a volume pedal or, oh, you have your left hand free. Can you play this sax line up here or play this organ part while you play the piano part? So it's constantly, uh, you know, using every muscle and every brain cell that I had and singing background vocals. And sometimes the rhythms did not line up very well. And it took a while, especially, uh, this is it. I remember being a particularly hard song oh, to yeah. play and sing some of the rhythms in the background vocals, but it's such great music that it's worth it. And, and we work hard, we rehearsed hard and, and we did some fun tours in the, I guess the summer of six and seven were probably the biggest uh, tours that we did with him. And I ended up, uh, our music director, when I first joined the band ended up pursuing German opera for a couple of years. And so when he left, uh, he's now the bass player with Toto, but when he left, uh, <laughs> that's, Kenny, that's kind of a head spin there. 
German, yeah. German opera he, from Kenny Loggins to Toto. He went from Kenny Loggins to German opera back to Kenny Loggins and then Toto, bass player. Um, but yeah, uh, Kenny asked me to be his musical director, so I got to do that for a couple of years too, which was was fun, difficult and fun. But we worked with a lot of local choirs and and trying to get them up to speed and orchestras. I would we would play orchestra dates, and yeah. I would kind of have to conduct sometimes with my head while I was playing or spare hand there conduct the orchestra because there might have been a rubato passage or something that that needed the that you couldn't actually follow the score necessarily but maybe kind of had to have the conductor it would be like a chain i would play and conduct the conductor and he would conduct the orchestra and so uh that was a new thing for me too i kind of got thrust into that uh at the last minute we were i believe in dallas and uh our music director well he he had left to do opera if i'm remembering this correctly he had not been in the band but he was coming back to uh to he was going to conduct the orchestra he was going to come back um he lived in phoenix so he was trying to fly from phoenix to dallas but they had some weather issues and he couldn't get off the tarmac and so he was supposed to come to dallas and conduct and i don't know if they they may not have even had a conductor that night um, because shem was supposed to come in and do it Um, so he's telling me all these things over the phone that i need to write down the scores okay on on poo corner uh, remember, have the clarinets, you know, tacit on bar 12 through 16, just giving me all these de- details over the phone. That, and and it was like, okay, Scott, go ahead and play the show and conduct the orchestra. <laughs> you know, welcome to the band kind of a thing. So that was interesting but fun. But definitely things that I'll have stories about for sure. But yeah, that was a, that was a fun couple of years for sure. Yeah, it's neat when you're, you get taxed to – you know, close to your max, right? And I find that's when I run an all four and a hundred, whatever you want to call cylinders, that when you get something that's a little easier, it's easier to to mess up. But I find when you've got 10 things going on at the same time, because the concentration level is so vast, you have to really lock in, that you rarely make yeah. mistakes in those circumstances. It's those ones that you're sitting there for a few minutes or you got a lazy part and that's the one you screw up on. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely concentrating with every brain cell you have, especially you get a, a ballad like forever and it's, it's a nice Roboto ballad. It's just you and Kenny. It's like, man, if my finger so much as slips onto the wrong half step, it's, it's out there in front of everybody to see. Yeah. It's one of my favorite songs that he's ever done, but Every night it was like, okay, here we go. <laughs> Lord, help me get through forever. <laughs> and I'll be okay. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's neat, uh, you know, after playing all these gigs and you're probably super confident, but there's still those times where you, you'll get a little nervous. There's that one spot or your hands get a little clammy or whatever it is. And, 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 and part of that is it's just that you really care that you want to make sure it's good, right? It's, it's, uh, yeah. And, just yeah it never gets old for me when it's just piano singer and nothing else it's like whew. and then you throw in you throw at the element of tv then it really ramps it up a little bit yeah you know when we're when it's a concert it's like ah these people aren't going to remember this and you know hopefully not, <laughs> people are going to have mobile phones that are probably running and capturing it but as far as it getting out past these twelve thousand people i think i'm okay but 
you could talk like, okay, now you're on the ACM or the AMA awards and it's just you on a piano and Carrie and the entire million of your audience. friends. Yeah. 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 <laughs> 20, however many million viewers they have. And it's a little more, a little sobering. It's like, Oh, I hope the cello comes in soon. At least somebody <laughs> else besides me. <laughs> Yeah, it's funny. As soon as that camera goes on, it's your brain just thinks differently. Even though you try to block out and just think you're just playing for the people there, there's something yeah. about having that camera there. It just kind of brings another whole other element of stress to your life. But for sure. I guess you take a look at you know the guys who are in front of the cameras all the time. It just becomes, if you're doing it every day, it becomes second nature. I think you don't think about it, but yeah. it's not something that you do every day. You know, it happens a right. lot. You might but, just yeah. block it out. Yeah. Yeah. And then I start going through my mind. Okay. Who's, who else is watching? Oh, <laughs> my music teacher growing up. He's probably watching. Rob Asselstein. He's probably watching and te texting. Uh, <laughs> oh, there he is. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. I oh, no, no, there no. it is. I, I quit. <laughs> Let alone an award show when you look out in the first few rows of the audience, it's going to be, you know, yeah. Everyone. Oh, there's there's Quincy Jones. Oh, there's, wow. There's nobody yeah. out there I'd like to work yeah. for. No. Yeah. No. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. So from uh, from Kenny Loggins, uh, I know you did some work with Richard Marks as well. Is that correct? <clears throat> yeah. There was a. Uh, I think if if I have the information correct, I think there was a time when uh, you know Richard works with these guys from Nashville, and they're a really fantastic band called six wire and they do a lot of work on their own and i think he kind of saw them getting a little busy and popular and thought mike may might be losing my band here if i get some gigs and there's some uh you know conflict so i better thicken my ranks so he started auditioning backups and i don't think he really had a, a particularly deep sub pool at the time so he started auditioning uh, guys and he had come out to see uh, Kenny. They're all buddies. And so he came out to a place, I think it was Ravinia. We played in Chicago and he came out and played a, a song that he and Kenny wrote. So we got to meet and hang out backstage. And so I think he got my info from Kenny, but anyway, I get a, an email from him. Hey, uh, I was wondering if you'd be interested in, in playing in my band. I'm auditioning some guys uh, to go out and do some shows together. So I went and played for him and uh, I guess I learned my parts vocally and keyboard wise well enough. And so he ended up putting this other B band together and we, we did quite a bit of work for, for a time. And then I think he kind of felt like, okay, I'm, I've got a solid B band in place. I can go back to my A band and we never played for him anymore, <laughs> but it was a fun little run yeah. and uh, did involve, I guess one trip their keyboard player couldn't uh, make it. We went to Jakarta, Indonesia. Wow. Uh, we flew there and it was, luckily we flew business class cause it was long. It was really comfortable though. Um, we went there, landed, played a, I think we played a 60 minute set or a 90 minute set. I don't even, it may not even been that long um, for somebody's wedding reception at the Four Seasons. And the next day we were gone back to the States. It was so such a weird whirlwind trip, but yeah. I can kind of check Indonesia off, off my list. <laughs> no kidding. That's, that's the last I played with Richard, but 
we still keep in touch now and then. I see. That, uh, was, that was a that was great music to play too because he was a little more. Uh, it was a little more roots in the type of parts that I was playing. I felt like I was a keyboard player yeah. in Richard's band. There were some times in Kenny's band, depending on the song, where I was almost like a, I was almost like a, a airplane pilot or something. I felt like I had to operate this slider to bring in this part, and this pedal brought in the string pad halfway through the chorus, and I was constantly it. It was almost as technological as it was musical, and with Richard, I just felt like I could sit at the keyboard and play a piano part or play an organ part. And it was a little more stripped down, uh, just play and sing the songs. And the, the, the arrangements weren't quite as, uh, you know, let's make it sound exactly like the record. Because he had kind of morphed from a keyboard player to more of a guitar, guitar player. player. He's yeah. fronting the band on guitar. He's actually a really good guitar player. I think growing up, I always just pictured him, you know, at the keyboard playing right here waiting or whatever it was, but, yeah. and then just out fronting the band by himself, but he's a great guitar player. And so he, he was fronting the band more on electric and acoustic guitar. And so I was covering all the keyboard parts and they just got a lot more basic, more piano organ type yeah. driven songs. I seen, uh, I seen him the last time at, actually at Fallsview. Um, gosh, maybe two, th three years ago. Uh, now, was that a duo show? With, no, it was a band. Uh, was uh, a band? Yeah, uh, full band. Those are probably the Six Wire guys. The band. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it probably was the Six Wire guys. But it was funny because, uh, you know, I was always a big fan and I saw him back in the late 80s when he had the big hits and the, one of the, the mullet. Yeah, one of the first bands to have very lights out on the, on the road, the whole deal, right? So, really looking forward to it and 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 it went and everything was great the band was great but i couldn't get past the mix because it was so dry it was like one of the dr uh. driest mixes i've ever experienced and it was a it was a good mix but you just missed those gushy snares and those that <laughs> that you know that you'd want to hear everything that, that big 80s sound right and it was just yeah you know, it was like the snare right here was like bonk, and that was and that was it. I'm thinking, this, no. is, this is, I know, I was waiting for all that great, you know, '80s effects and all that stuff to make that big sound, and it was just none of it there. It was like all the effects were turned mm. off. Um, so it was like I left, and I was like, oh, I just couldn't get past the mix. <laughs> but it was a great. He sang great, and the band was great. So, you know. yeah, he his vocals are impressive. He's his uh, intonation was was one of the best I've ever heard in life. Just a pleasure singing behind him. We had a good time. Cool. He was good at recognizing his band too, yeah. giving them props. You know, was, I felt I felt well respected. You know, as a as a peer for him and his band, I felt like he really uh, respects the guys in his band and, and gives them credit on stage. Yeah, and that's funny how that changes from band to band and, and leader to leader, where at some circumstances is you're you're back 50 feet and you know you're just background music and other times you're all in it together um yeah kenny was like that too he liked to feature his his band guys vocally there were you know quite a few parts throughout the evening where we would have little solo parts in in songs whether it was those step out lines in footloose or i'm all right and then you know i would sing mama don't dance i would be jimmy messina with him and uh so he, he was good about that too. Cool. So how did the Carrie Underwood 
gig come about? Um, her her band leader and I had been friends for a long time, and I guess their keyboard player decided he didn't want to be on the road anymore. Um, so uh, Mark had known about me and and contacted me and asked me if I was interested in the gig, and I said yes for sure. And then uh, so uh, they said we want to, you know here i guess he had known me long enough that it wasn't really a question of whether i could play the, the gig they just kind of wanted to hear how he, they wanted to add a keyboard player who could sing and kind of beef up that background vocal department if they're going to have to replace somebody hey let's since we've got this opportunity let's let's get somebody who, who's a strong singer yeah. so i came to mind because he had known me from my time as Stephen Curtis Chapman. I did a lot of singing. It was kind of the, the vocal band leader as well as the instrumental band leader there. Um, so uh, I ended up singing some things for him and putting some things on tape that they could listen to. And uh, they ended up liking what I, what I showed them. And uh, we started working in the summer of 15. We did a, a show out at the Opry and the CMT Awards. And... Then we were kind of off to the races doing, uh, doing some festivals and stuff. Neat. So what what type of prep now? Uh, maybe in the last couple tours with Carrie, uh, how long do you spend in rehearsals and and what's your prep like for for touring with her? Um, I'd say the the band probably rehearses about a month, um, working on just the music, and then we take it to this to the staging. Uh, section of the preparation and, and do it with all the production, the sound and lights and dress rehearsals and things like that before we take it on the road. And, you know, we get the music at home to, to work on before we hit rehearsals. But a lot of the times it's working on, you know, the transitions. Let's come up with something to link these two songs together. Yeah. You know, it usually involves, you know, maybe a costume change or, or just some production transition that we need music bed for. And, uh, you know, she's got great people working on her her set design and show design that, that know where, where those sections need to be. And they're good at communicating that with our music director, who kind of involves the whole band and coming up with those those sounds and those looks and those sections and things like that. So when you got new, uh, new songs from, say, Carrie Underwood, uh, to dissect what the keyboard sounds are what what's involved there do you get to know or talk to someone who did the parts and know exactly what they used and uh that's a good question um uh you know as as is the case with most touring these days everything everything's recorded digitally so um you know everybody's kind of got stems of what's on the record that they can isolate out and give to the band to learn so we pretty much know exactly what was played on the record. It's just you know a matter of reproducing it. And I did end up calling the one of the keyboard players that I know played on the record just to ask him a couple of questions. A lot of times you can tell what's going on, but a few times there were some interesting sounds used on this uh, last uh, Cry Pretty record, and I had to ask, how did you get that you know sound? They had. One in particular that sticks out was um, there's a song called uh, "Drinking Alone," and there's a there's a keyboard s- slap on beats two and four of the chorus, and what it is it's a 
it's an organ with the Leslie on fast and the reverb turned all the way up, but there's no draw bars. It's all percussion. So you just basically get the sound of the percussion at a, through a fast Leslie blown through a a wide open reverb and it just kind of, and it just, and it's a really great effect. That's, it was brilliant. I'm sure it's probably not the first time it's been done, but uh, I thought it was really, really fun. Great sound. And uh, we ended up using, and the hard part for me was there's also regular Hammond organ uh, that's happening at the same time. And the, and the Leslie's speeding up and slowing down and they're just basically held triads. Yeah. And so I had the challenge of, well, how am I going to do this uh, effect on two and four with the speed staying fast and also work the regular Leslie part the regular organ part. And so I ended up, uh, Roland has a, a sampling box and I basically assigned those, uh, snare hits to pads that I could trigger. And that's eventually how we were going to end up making it work live. But that seemed like a little too, too much extra gear to have on stage just for one song. So yeah. we ended up just leaving that on, on the, the tracks that, you know, run yeah. the, during the show. So it, it was something that I didn't really miss not playing. It was just more easy to, and I ended up playing a, a pr- upright piano part anyway. So it turns out I really didn't have enough hands to do all three, which is often the case these days with, with uh, DAWs that you can just keep stacking and stacking and stacking. You can, you're going to run out of hands at some point. Yeah, exactly. So what, how do you find now with, with touring? I'm, I'm sure back uh, with, with maybe Kenny and uh, you were probably were, I'm not sure if you were running tracks back then. Um, do you like being locked in with tracks and doing that whole thing? Or do you just like the idea of just letting it rip? Um, oh, that's a loaded question. Um, there's definitely <laughs> I things I like I about, there's definitely things I like about both. Um, with my bands here in Nashville, some we kind of do a mixture. You know, there's just sometimes when you're playing a song and, apart from having to pay another head and put somebody else on stage, I'd, I'd rather use, use tracks just to fill in what might be missing, at least from the experience I want to put off of stage. So I don't mind using tracks for that. I don't, I don't mind being tied to an arrangement. Um, that might just be me. There's people are made up different ways and how they like to present music. Uh, especially when you're going to, you're on a tour and you want to present the same show every night uh, the set list never changes. And so it's, it, and you have so many different facets going on at once that need to be synchronized. And so you're almost locked into a, a track from start to finish, yeah. you know, that everything is, so you have, that's what makes the show so great. So it makes people go, wow, is because when that big boom hits at the beginning and all the lights go up and then they start going crazy and it's all in synchronization. It's like, you can't just wing that. You have to have some sort of synchronization going on. And, you know, there's songs that have more than others. Um, and, and, and so that doesn't really bother me. Um, have you had any and on, on, issues on the road with, with tracks? Any? We really haven't. We've been blessed and uh, there's redundancy. We have a second system that automatically kicks in if something goes wrong with the first system. So, uh, it's really seamless to us. There's been times when we might've heard from our, uh, our technician, 
you know, we went to the B rig tonight and I'll be like, where? And you know, we don't even know cause it's so seamless and so, and so perfect the way it's the way it works. But honestly, um, me personally, I'm not a huge ad liver. I'm not, uh, I don't really take extended solos. I'll take a, a bit here and there, but that's something that has never really come naturally to me. You know, I, I respect the heck out of guys that can do that, but I've never really pursued getting better at it too hard. And so for me, having a beginning and an end and not having the pressure of, oh, I've got to improvise and fill this spot that's, you know, this nebulous goo. I don't know how long it is. I'd rather have eight bars that I know, okay, I can sculpt a, a nice – uh, a nice succinct solo here and and I can play the two or three licks that I know and get out and <laughs> impress everybody uh, or not and then move on and finish the song that's just me so you know I'm kind of suited for the synchronized life and track life yeah. and I enjoy creating them and kind of visualizing okay this is what it's going to sound like and but every time you've worked with me you haven't had to use track at all and you played great man so yeah well I thank you that was fun i've done a lot of a lot of different types of stuff the uh rave on was particularly new for me playing the uh, jerry lee lewis type piano stuff all night long so <laughs> i definitely got some bruises on my fingers from raking up and down the piano <laughs> Had to wear various bandages and pads over the course of the run there at Falls View. <laughs> so let's talk about your uh, your bands that you have in town in Nashville uh, and the different uh, shows that you do. We were talking a bit about that before we started the podcast, and uh, uh, I watched a lot of them on YouTube, and uh, really fantastic. Uh, talk about what little projects you have there. Well, they're not little, but... Yeah, um, so I think it all was kind of uh, gestated in a, a little disco band we used to have playing weddings and corporate events where we would dress in 70s disco garb. We called it delicious, but deep down, we were all kind of, uh, you know, a little more sophisticated. We love disco music, and disco music is incredibly sophisticated, but we were more... Uh, deep down, we were more of the, uh, for a better term, the Yacht Rock crew. We were into Steely Dan and and Chicago and that kind of, more of that type of music. But we would end up playing parts, bits and pieces of Steely Dan songs while we were sound checking this disco band. And so finally, I just kind of decided, I'm going to try and do this for real. Because I don't know if, if you're like me and you've ever sound checked a Steely Dan, but Steely Dan song, but more times than not, at some point in the jam, it breaks down because people don't know the right Steely Dan chord. And <laughs> all, every Steely Dan gets to a certain song, certain part of the song where someone goes, uh, I don't know how this part goes. Yeah. And then it falls apart. But I said, let's just see if we can do this from start to finish. So I, I got into my, uh, my takedown mode in my computer and just started to churn out these Steely Dan arrangements with horn horn arrangements and rhythm charts and vocal parts written out and slowly built up a catalog and then said, guys, I think I'm ready. Let's, uh, if you want to do this, let's, let's start rehearsing. So I put some people together 
and we would rehearse five or six songs on a Saturday morning, one week, and then uh, that went pretty good. Let's try these songs next week and slowly built up a repertoire. And when we got to a, a place where we felt like we could have a, a full length show, we went to a nearby club and said, have you ever thought about having tribute bands? We've got a Steely Dan tribute we've been working on. He said, well, I'll, I'll give you a Thursday night if you want to come in. So we, uh, we, you know, just kind of got the word out. And uh, at the time we were called Royal Scam. Uh, <laughs> turns out there's a band in New York with the same name. So we eventually got a cease and desist letter and had to change our name. But uh, we ended up uh, playing and growing the repertoire and getting a, a, a following there in Nashville. And we changed the name to 12 Against Nature, kind of to take off their Two Against Nature record that won a Grammy for them. We were a 12 piece. We tried to copy um, their their instrumentation at the time when they were touring. They had uh, three background vocalists who were gals. Uh, we just went to, to two because our keyboard player sang as well. He was a really good vocalist. But we had two keyboards, two guitars, four horns, which is what they had at the time. So uh, we, squ we squeezed into this little club at the time. Third and Lindsley was a small club here in Nashville. It's now had a complete remodel and is a proper size, glorious venue. It's great. Yeah. Um, but uh, so we started playing and after a while we thought, you know, it might be nice. We had uh, Jason chef from Chicago sit in with us a couple of wow. times. And so we would work up 25 or six to four and maybe a couple other Chicago tunes for him to sing with. And we, we ended up to kind of, well, let's take that to the next level. Okay. So then I started charting out the Chicago songbook pre 1980. We weren't really interested in reproducing the 16, 17, 18 Chicago records with David Foster. We were looking more towards the Terry Kath vintage Chicago transit authority tunes. Uh, and so we, started charting calling me does anybody know what time it is uh you know just you and me i'm a man free all of saturday in the park all that kind of stuff yeah. came up with the chicago show and so one night we decided to bust out a combo chicago steely dan show and that went over really well and we still do that combo to this day uh, that seems to sell out the club the most and so we probably do that three or four times a year when we're not hiding from COVID germs. Yeah. Uh, so that started, we call that make me smile. And that started getting its own outside bookings. We played a few parties in the Dallas Arboretum. We played a show out there. And uh, so, so that's been kind of running on its own as well. And uh, so then I started to kind of get a Jones for what I call LA West Coast's AOR sophistipop kind of things my sweet spot there is between 75 and 85 so i started churning out put a band together and started putting arrangements together for that band and we called that live from ventura boulevard that's a seven piece band it has two keyboards uh guitar bass drums and a sax and uh we recently added another front man. So it's now eight piece and we have a percussionist who sings too. So uh, that covers more the Kenny Loggins, Doobie brothers, Boz Skaggs, Toto, um, little James Taylor, uh, just the whole, what is now kind of being termed yacht rock on the serious radio. And there's, yeah. and the bands that are, you know, out there playing that form of music. That's kind of what our playlist is. Cool. And, uh, so that's our that's our third band 
And that band kind of uh, go back to the Steely Dan tribute one night. It was in 2010, about six years into our, I think we formed in yeah 20, 2004. Before the club was redone, we were playing in 2010 and it was the big Nashville flood. May 2010, Nashville had a horrendous flood yep. and not a whole lot of people heard about it because the BP oil spill was happening in South Florida. And that's kind of where all the media attention was. Meanwhile, you know, half of Nashville was underwater. Our instruments were floating and over at sound check lockers. And it was just, just bad scene. And uh, Christopher Cross was coming to town to do a show with the symphony and our symphony hall was flooded. He couldn't do his show. So he ended up doing a kind of an unplugged show at a different location, but he was in town while we were playing a gig and Christopher Cross is a huge Steely Dan fan. And so uh, his producer from way back, Michael Lamartian lives in Nashville and Michael uh, has been in to sit in with our Steely Dan group quite a few times and has a lot of good friends who are in the band and have sat in with the band. And so uh, his engineer, I believe it was Terry Christian, recommended to Christopher that you need to go see this Steely Dan show since you're in town. They're playing. Come on out to the club. So uh, my wife gets this note on the table, save two seats for Christopher Cross and Terry Christian. And she's like, I don't know what these guys look like. And so she Googles Christopher Cross album and she gets a picture of a flamingo. She's like, well, that's not helping me. <laughs> so she I hope I'll know him when he comes in. So finally, uh, he did end up coming in and seeing our show and really enjoyed it and kind of kept in touch and has been a friend ever since. So uh, that all said to kind of preview back to where this live from Ventura Boulevard band was together. And we started playing Christopher's music and in one of my conversations with him, I said, you know, if you're ever in town, we'd love to have you sit in because we already play a few of your songs. And he said, yeah, I'm going to come to town and I'll bring my guitar and we can do this and this and this. And he gave us a song list that we learned. And I had a little rehearsal the night before and uh, he came out. We packed out the club. We did our regular set. He came up. We did six or seven songs. And uh, then he ended up hiring us to be his band for a the International Entertainment Buyers Association conference we have in Nashville. Yeah. And so he did a little showcase with us. Having used this in the club, he was confident that it would turn out okay. And so that went well. And then he ended up hiring our two background singers and took them on the road with him. So he had a nice little experience with uh, Live from Ventura Boulevard uh, in his career. And so that's still going, um, you know, and uh, the thing you referred to before we went on air uh, was uh, I've been a big fan of Donald Fagan's Nightfly. And we do two or three of his songs from that record in our 12 Against Nature Steely Dan tribute. But I wanted to do I had put together a video that's on YouTube uh, of Maxine. I did a transcription of Maxine and, and recorded all the parts in my house and re-recorded all the instruments, uh, program drums and bass and guitar played the keys and programmed the horns and sang all the vocals. And I put a little YouTube video together with the four squares and me in four different outfits singing the four different vocal parts and, and faking the guitar and the bass and, and the horns and things like that. It's just kind of a comical, but the, the music part is serious, but the uh, presentation's a little bit tongue in cheek. Yeah. And after figuring out Maxine, I thought, well, let me just go ahead and transcribe the whole record. So, uh, I ended up doing that, putting a band together, and finally in 2018, we put it on stage after re rehearsing it for a few 
few sessions and we did the whole night flight record and a bunch of songs from 1982 and that can also be seen on the uh, on the, U- the youtube we were able to capture video footage and got some great sound and audio mixes of the eight uh, nightfly songs as well as a few of the other extra songs that we did uh, nothing you can do about it by airplay that's on there and i'm gonna post uh uh jojo by boss skaggs pretty soon i don't think we have video we, yes actually we do have video of that one as well i haven't posted that yet we're kind of spacing them out trying to give each video a little you know for yeah. lack of a better term its own its own circulation on you know high rotation before it kind of yeah falls off and then throw something new out there instead of throwing it all out there at once um but that's that was fun stuff that was a fun show um 1982 is just an incredible year in music you had hall and oats with right in between private eyes and voices and uh you had michael jackson's thriller still hanging around and, and uh and christopher cross had uh i think it was the theme from arthur was out that year just lionel richie's solo album and of course the nightfly and toto four and it's just when you look back at the charts that year it's it's pretty mind-boggling the incredible music that came out in 82 so we wanted to showcase that as kind of a special year in music highlighted off with this nightfly record sounds like a big project it was it was very rewarding and it's it's great to hear those mixes uh and you know see the the great response uh, that my YouTube page has gotten from the they're slowly circulating around there through, uh, you know, Donald Fagan fan pages and Steely Dan fan pages. And uh, for the most part, we get some really great reviews and people enjoying, you know, having that out there. So if people wanted to listening, wanted to go check that out, what's the best way for them to, to find that? Uh, I believe you can go to youtube.com slash t and as in tennessee keys k-e-y-s um i can't check that at the moment but i think that's how you can find it but i have that whole nightfly show as a playlist so uh you could probably search it that way excellent and that's that's my youtube handle tn keys so i imagine the way to find it is youtube.com slash tn keys or just search uh for TN keys and they will probably, yeah. Or Scott Sheriff might, if you search my name, it probably will come up to try and tag it in there just so people can find it. Perfect. Well, it's been fascinating. A couple of quick questions to kind of wrap up here and uh, appreciate your time. It's been really fascinating. Uh, One question I always like to ask uh, every guest and I know with everyone you've been performing with, you've played all over the place, but do you have a venue or a place out there that you haven't played that's been on your bucket list and you've always wanted to go and play at? Uh, Royal Albert Hall in London and Red Rocks Amphitheater. Oh, I haven't done Red Rocks. In Colorado. Yeah. It, it's funny how I mention this all the time, but Red Rocks comes up all the time um, as one of those top, that Hollywood Bowl. Yeah, it's just so unique. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's on my <laughs> top three list for sure. I almost had a chance to to play it with a, a John Denver show um, oh, wow. a couple of years ago and it just didn't didn't come through but it was like I was pretty stoked that it might but it will still happen one of these days when we get back to music um, right and uh, anything now in in the future and and obviously we're in COVID land and we're all experiencing something uh, that we're not used to but uh, do you have a any plans in the next uh 
a little bit here on what you want to accomplish while we're sitting around and and trying to learn new, oh. new equipment? <laughs> yeah. Um, no, I'm just just looking forward to, to getting back out there and yeah. and hopefully resuming what we what we thought was normal life and because uh, we we had some really great shows planned. Um, you know, one of my favorite things to do is return back home and play in Pennsylvania. And we had a great show at the, uh, the Allentown fair lined up in September that unfortunately got pushed back to 2021. So, um, just looking forward to hearing what's next for Carrie, for us to get out there and play with her. Yeah. Um, I know she announced that there was some Christmas music coming. Uh, so that's no, shouldn't be a surprise. If anybody's been following her on social media, there was a picture of her, her Christmas record up there. Um, and, uh, you know, being able to get out again with these bands, we were just about to launch, uh, you know, a kind of a, an alter ego to our Live from Ventura Boulevard band called Yachts Landing, where we all wear <laughs> 70s clothes and get out and, and uh, play some yacht rock music at parties and things like that. So, but just as we got our video recorded and our demo finished, bam, COVID hit and we haven't played a single show, but... I was looking forward to getting that off the ground too yeah. and uh, being able to play some fun music when we're not out on the road. Right. Rob, do you have anything else you want to ask? Well, you know, uh, really just uh, hopefully everybody's doing well in Nashville. I know that we uh, all connect from time to time just to find out, you know, what everybody's doing. Anytime, you know, you're interested in doing any, any, work with any of us up here in Canada, you know, uh, just keeping ourselves busy and, and, and doing stuff really is, is all we can really hope for right now. So glad to see you, Scott. Yeah. Yeah. You too, Rob. I missed the days at falls for you. Those were fun. They were indeed. <laughs> well, thank you again. Just hang on. We'll wrap up and then we'll chat real quick after the end, but, uh, I appreciate it. And also, uh, mentioned, uh, make sure you hop on, uh, YouTube and check out those videos. Uh, I, I think everyone will really, really enjoy them. They're, they're fan. I'm planning to do a bit of that tonight once I finish up the rest of my work. And, um, and yeah, just, just great work. And it's been a nice and a really great chat with you. And I hope that next time uh, we're in Nashville, uh, we'll be able to uh, grab a coffee. That'd be great. Yeah, that'd be fantastic. Planning Thanks, around Scott. the show, hopefully. Okay, Rob. I'll let you guys you. chat. I've got grandkids upstairs, so uh, I'm, I got the work to do. <laughs> Talk to you later. You have, you have good soundproofing. They've been well behaved. Uh, well, you might have noticed I've been riding the mute button pretty good because they're, oh. gonna, <laughs> they're making a lot of noise up there. All right, guys. Take care. Uh, Thanks for See Rob. ya. Bye bye. Thanks.